Hey there, this week I share about a book called The Logic of Life, written by Tim Harford, an economist from Oxford. Published in 2008, Harford argues that rational behaviour is more widespread than expected in the larger populations. This is the second of two episodes and we discuss chapters 4 to 6 about topics ranging from office politics, overwhelming gain paradox, dangers of rational racism, to why the needs of the few is more often than not met than the needs of the many. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so chapter 4 talks about the office politics, which I think we can all sort of need to understand before we get like into jobs. So it starts off by asking about why your bosses are always overpaid. So you know, I'm not sure if you've seen like a lot of those public companies, private companies that are public, they need to sort of pub- publish how much they earn, right? Yeah. As an individual, as a CEO. And then a lot of times, it really doesn't make sense how much they earn. So for example, the Disney CEO, Michael Eisner, he basically earned 800 million, US 800 million over 13 years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so but, but before we reach that, he talks about how at the baseline, the, the most rational thing is your performance pay must encourage performance, right? Everyone should be paid how much they, they put their work into. So if you work very hard, then you, you put yourself on work. But we can see that in reality, a lot of times, first of all, the difficulty is that performance is hard to be measured. And because it's hard to be measured, therefore it's hard to be rewarded. Yes, correct, yeah. And then this problem plagues a lot of those bureaucracies. Like those, uh, There's a reason why people have a dictation. Some people have a... It's, a, it's the root of the cause of the problem for all politics. Mm. But one interesting thing that he found out was that sometimes, even though we have the information with us, we can't make use of the information. Does it make sense? So previously, is is the limitation factor is that you are unable to measure your performance. Because for example, is as a doctor, it's not about how many patients you call because that depends how many patients come in. Yeah, but sometimes you have the information in you, but you you as the boss, you cannot make any decision out of those information. Hmm. Why? Okay, so he gave this example of the supermarket chain. He wants to say it makes quite a lot of sense. It's very easy to get information of objective performance measures for this supermarket chain. Those people that are checking out for the supermarket, you can see how many times they scan, you can see how long they stand there, you can see all these kind of things. But it becomes a problem when you overanalyze and overcompensate. And even there are th- those unions that were, I mean, NTUC itself is a union they are against uh piecewise contracts that means yeah. they say for every work that you've done then, then they pay instead of per hour because when you pay per hour the limitation is uh they might not do anything for one hour but they're still there for one hour yeah by having piecewise it creates this competition as well as uh everything can be manipulated so for those people for, the, for example the supermarket chain they can scan things faster or people come and ask for oh where do I put this where can I find that or I have a problem with my scanning or I have a special request or something like that they won't cater to those needs yeah, yeah, because right. it doesn't incentivize them lah. yeah so even though bosses in some scenarios in some companies they will have access to this information they wouldn't make use of it because it will complicate things it will create this negative loop yeah actually I think there's a there's a term for this it's called it's oh, called okay. uh, Goodhart's Law. Basically, when anything becomes a measure for something, it ceases to become a good measure. So like, it's just how you explain it. La. So if you decide to measure someone's performance by the uh, number of items he checks out or the number of customers he serves, then the person will just optimize for the number of people he serves rather than the quality of the service, which is, should be the priority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true, that's true. Uh, yeah. But okay, he also brings up another point on one, one way that you can sort of manipulate this. This He, he brings up a point on even the most fundamental thing is when it's very clear that when you have better performance, this guy should be paid better. So one example was those Olymp- Olympians, la, like pole vaulters. If you break a record, then they'll pay you, la, right? So, but even for that, you can manipulate. So this guy called, I can't really pronounce his name, but his name is Sergei Popka. Supposedly, he's a very good 
uh, pole vaulter. Then what he does is he only will sort of beat his record in, in very small amounts every year. Oh. But because of that, he sort of seen as winning a record every year. Yeah, so everything is gameable. Yeah, everything is gameable. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what 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 is what is the ultimate outcome for bosses in, in the in the working world is that they tend to give you uh or at least I mean I can I can sort of agree to this is that what happens is where when those uh bosses or team leads they will gather those analysts or people under them, they won't have any objective measure or they will have they won't they won't write down okay, you need to meet this objective measure. They will just say, they will give themselves discretion to reward good work, the quote-unquote good work, without being too precise about what good work mm, is. Yeah. So in one sense, the intent is there so that you don't want to have all these limitations on the past methods. But uh, this leads back to this question of now these bosses have a lot of discretion over your raise, your promotion, and your bonuses, and everything. Lah. And nobody will know why because you cannot prove it in court. It's not written down. Yeah, correct. Because what is written down is that you are, you are out to achieve good work. But because of this, now this creates a loop where your bosses are now have perfect rational reasons to pay yourself a crazy bonus. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Because yeah. first of all, it's a chain where everyone down the line cannot prove that there is a reason why uh, he or she has done good work. Lah. Yeah. And then when you reach your very the very top of the boss, it is, you can imagine, even for analysts or even for fresh grads, lah, right? They will be doing a lot of work that is, you can't really measure what they're doing. So you can even imagine a CEO, uh, you can't really assess how well he's doing. At the analyst level, you can sort of still compare, right? You can sort of still, okay, it's a, they call it the, the tournament theory, la, where everyone is just paid based on their relative performance, yeah. right? When you're a CEO, right, there's no one to compare exactly. to. Yeah. Okay, I can't remember where I put it, but before I miss it, he also writes an example of how they also economically, did economic tests on like uh, supermarket workers that the, the point I'm trying to prove is that the setting of where you work plays a big factor. So actually, I think, for example, like where, where you sit in your office actually matters a lot. Initially, you would think that, okay, just in the setting, if I, I see in a classroom full of like uh, hardcore muggers or hardcore studiers, then our tendency to study harder, yeah. right? But what the, what, what the insight was is that it's not because that you don't want to, you are inspired by them or tendency or in general, uh, people aren't inspired. It's more so that in the, in the working setting, you don't want to be seen as the, the lazy one or the ones taking off. How they realized, how they sort of uh, analyzed this was that when you put those hard workers in a spot where they can see those other workers, then those other workers will be working harder. But if those other workers aren't seen by the hard, so those lazier workers aren't seen by the harder workers that are outside, then they won't really care. Yeah. So, yeah. So despite being all in the same room, it's all in the same vicinity. Mm. Yeah. So that was yeah, like social pressure is quite uh, quite a big social factor. Pressure, yeah. 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 But also engineering it. I think it, how do I say, as a leader next time you can solve these are sort of intricacies you can look mm. into. Like where you organize people to sit is quite important. It is, yeah. One interesting thing that I've learned also, the last point is, the second last point, is that when luck is involved in your work, which it often is because when you are unable to measure your work quantitatively, then to some extent, luck is involved in your your pay, right? That pay needs to be a very large gap when people believe that there is luck involved or there is chance or there is quote-unquote hope. Oh, yes. Does that make sense? Mm. So initially, I didn't understand this. So, but he gives this uh, opposing view. You look at it in an idealistic world where like similar to the, I mean, exactly at the start, where you work harder, you get paid more, right? You work harder, you get paid more. But if that is the case, then I will continuously work harder and harder, like linear, like linear regression, right? But that isn't, obviously, you will know that work, like even in studying, it doesn't mean the longer hours you study, the less you sleep, then the better my grades. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's some optimum where you cannot sleep too little, so. Yeah, actually, I, I can't get uh, this point. La. It's like, uh, the more, 
the more uncertain something is, like the more you should get paid if you manage to do it because you yes, you yes, cannot yes, exactly. work for that gap. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. basically you're paying for a lot of the so-called intangibles, like, oh, his uh, intuition or experience that bridges the gap that people call luck like, sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I don't know how this relates to the boss, the boss question, but essentially his main point about uh, one of the arguments on why in an economic standpoint or at least in a rational standpoint why bosses pay is uh, valid or, or reasonable is because first of all your bosses pay is where people look aspire to be so if you put a scale maybe at the analyst level or the very low level they are very close maybe 10% chance that so that means 90% chance you're working harder you get paid higher your average Joe right you 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 cannot give him too much luck then they just want work already yeah right. you, you must give him a certain like very easy life where they work harder they get paid harder then that's their life but once you reach the higher 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 there's too many as a CEO itself there's like COVID like that. that's just you can't control it that one is popian. That he will face. I mean, if he were to be measured by any form of success, it's like uh his earnings per share or whatever or earnings that that season. Yeah, but he definitely will do bad because of this luck. Yeah. The second point is the people in the company will look to him as the as the benchmark. So if I know that, for example, my my CEO earns ten million uh ten million a year, which is quite a lot. But that means down the chain you were sort of not to expect not so much and you cannot definitely cannot expect to earn more than him so or him or her so 10 mil mm. yeah so there's still some benefit and because people are eyeing that salary and wanting to have this motivation to work harder that 8 million or the 800 million over the 13 years this this Michael Eisner made does not just consolidate or validate how much work he has done over 13 years but also the whole organization's motivation for doing and just trying to get in this position <laughs> yeah okay yeah that's quite cool but yeah. yeah I think it'll be a very commonplace work, work discussion like why, why is this CEO earning so much money that kind of thing but this is it all. so a lot of things where nature plays its cause or historically it's never changed there's always a reason for it. Economists like to think so. La. Okay, he goes on to one specific detail is that how CEOs are paid more often than not is uh, stock options, which is the equilibrium that is set in general. Because for example, if you pay by salary la, to a CEO, he has no incentive to just laze around, right? Because at his level, it may be like 60% luck. Right? Yeah, so the in, his input won't have any output because right? 60% luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so what do they do is they give CEOs stock options. So, so let's say he is, is unlucky this year with COVID, but no choice. If your salary is in stock options, you will want your stocks to go up. So then you have to legit do all the best for your, mm, for your yeah, company. That's true. What's your yeah. opinion on like uh, bosses rewarding people informally? Okay, what's your opinion? Mm, I mean, like in the abstract, I can see why it's a good way of like rewarding stuff because if you don't know like what uh what the bosses are particularly looking out for, then like the workers cannot game whatever measure that he's trying to measure them up against la. but then at the same time it also like breeds a lot of ambiguity and sometimes a lot of distress in the staff if like if you don't know what is supposed to be the good work then they don't know what to strive towards then yeah it breeds unnecessary stress in some cases okay, I don't have a direct response to your question but I can share from experience like uh, managing people's expectations is quite important so because okay, I've, basically I have this I think any platoon right in army there will always be the lazy few and then there will be the hardworking few and then those hardworking few will always feel that they are I think it's just inbuilt in them la. people are just inbuilt to work hard or people are just to want to help solve some yeah. problem but because they I will need to give incentive but you just cannot because yeah, it just cause a lot of disparity yeah correct I guess this one difficulty with this boss's paying yeah mm. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, but in the, in the context of army, I think it's more of like the disincentive of not doing stuff is more prominent than the incentives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But how how will you okay, imagine head of your clinic? How will you pay your your people? I don't know. I think in for healthcare systems, it's fairly systematic. It's like more or less usually it's like hourly wage. Ah, huh? even for doctors. Uh, for local medics lah. Really? Yeah, I think like doctors are paid by the hour. Uh, not not all of them. I mean, not all. But like for local doctors or like local nurses, they are paid by the hour. But as in like it's a set contract lah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it's like a. They, yeah, correct. It's kind of part-time work. I'm sure the normal like oh. doctors and like private practice they don't pay themselves by the hour, but like uh, yeah, yeah. I I've come to accept that is a problem that will never go away. Managing people. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll share this from my experience at uh the bank. I think oh no, experience in a bank and experience reading a book somewhere else. Office politics is real. It's not something that okay. At least when I was at my internship, it didn't feel very intense. Like, I felt very like. Everyone was quite okay. But then there was this book that I read that says like, no matter what your experience is, office politics is the thing. Because the fact is when money comes into play, it's not that everyone is a snake. I mean, not so bad. I don't think at my, at my department, uh, the department I was looking at people are snakes, but it's just uh, undoubtedly they'll be there. La. And how people overcome this or one important thing that I actually didn't appreciate until th- these coming years is aesthetics. So because people are unable to give this is this, this similar to a black box uh, neural network they can't pinpoint what exactly it is right but what people what bosses can see is what they see so your aesthetics so like you, if you come here to work they can see that if you don't dress very well you, they can see that then they're like hey, how come you're not you're very stressed is it and then, or is it like with the amount of work given you're so stressed that kind of thing yeah, yeah so a lot of uh, impression goes a long way. La, yeah, yeah, impression management is very important. But I also say, okay, one, one physical, one actual thing I learned is that at least in my internship department, they weren't so like, it's not like a school like that. Undoubtedly, everywhere you go, there'll be deadlines, right? There'll be, so you need to plan things and places to go. How it's set in school because it's one person dealing like many people, right? You set in stone like, okay, I set this time. But in, in work often is, I think even when you as a doctor, you will set your own time. Your mentor will probably just be like, okay, there's, there's a problem. This is a problem set. Then when can you finish it, right? Yeah. The most difficult thing, right, is setting your own deadline. That's, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Because eventually, because when you set on deadline, eventually there's the deadline that they'll be used to mark, they'll measure your performance. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of times, I will overestimate or underestimate what I can do. Actually, what, 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 will you, do you think you'll face these kind of problems in, in, in the medical scene? I mean, I can really imagine it medical school kind of. Oh, why? I think because people are going to be like competing so-called for like specialty sports and that stuff. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So the whole demand supply thing is coming up again. But yeah, okay. I will not think too much about that for now. <laughs> Live in the bliss of things. Yeah. Okay, chapter 5. So chapter 5 is somewhat unrelated already. It's talking about cities la, in general. Okay, actually, uh, before that, I will talk about the small thing on chapter 6 to 8. Basically, the main point that I got of it was that uh, I think initially cities are seen as innovation hubs. Though, see? The most important thing is, so, so if you look at it very physically, for example, like me going to London or like going to New York, New York is not cheap, eh. it's really not cheap. I mean, even looking at the parking rates, right? Like, can you imagine, okay, imagine parking at, uh, okay, parking at NUS. How much will you pay in like for four hours? I have no idea. <laughs> How much do you normally see for a parking? Yeah, at most like maybe six, six, seven dollars. Like, regardless of the yeah. time, right? Like four, five hours. New York's parking rate is on average is twenty dollars US an hour. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, it's damn expensive. Like New York is legit no joke expensive. So there's this saying la, one one US dollar isn't one US dollar in New York. Like, every is is a uh, sixty cents because you pay your tax, you pay for all the crazy mm. stuff. Uh, but then why is that? Why is there still a rational rational reason why people go into New York? 
And so the reason is because of uh, ideas or innovation. And there's this, I, some, some, I can't remember who, la, but there's one economist that said, famously said there's a, ideas are always in the air. I think similar to what I share you about like Mets and how there are a lot of connections and connections of ideas in very, in the place you least expect it. But when you situate yourself in a city where you are prone to get a lot of ideas that you don't expect, but more regularly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, someone similar to your average of five friends. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, okay. The more you interact, uh, yeah. The more you interact with someone in the city or like with strangers or whatever. Yeah, more, not even more you kind of like, more, the more you get more ideas from them. Also, then you can grow as a person. But he, as in, I didn't really want to talk about those chapters because he also brought a, 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 a rebuttal point which sort of rebuts his whole point is that now in this internet age, you don't need to be physically there to be in this air of uh, innovation. Oh, yeah. Okay, but I think for me at least, I'll argue there is still some benefit if you physically move there. Uh, what, what would you say? I think there will be, yeah. It's yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the vibes, you know. But I, I, also, I also can't pinpoint exactly what is it, right? But technically, I'm pretty sure, let's say I want to be surrounded by all the I mean, like LA is the place where all the computer stuff is happening. But I just technically I can be there also lah. But there's just some limiting factors that won't be so same as you being there actually. Yeah, it's it's yeah. hard to pinpoint lah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but well, that there's a brief summary for six and eight. Right. So chapter five is yeah more about the main point is that uh areas of rich and poor tend to stay the same. So actually something that really hit close to my not say home. But uh, home to be is that basically there's this guy last time his name is Charles Booth he has this famous map of London's rich and poor areas so I actually put a link in you can see it uh, it's quite impressive basically his map was created in like 1800s Whoa. but you can see that when you overlay over current maps right it still shows the similar uh, similar standards of where are those rich areas and which, where are those poor areas oh and it's still yeah, accurate yeah. And, and it's still accurate yeah it's still, it's still accurate but the reason so is because initially it doesn't seem so rational because you would think that um, and the idea of entropy everything if you don't control it tendency is you'll change right? <laughs> yeah right yeah, yeah. But there's this one thing is something that has stayed constant for like very long. And so if you look at, so there's this, so Thomas Kelling, the same guy that, he's the same guy that was dealing with the, the Cold War. He came up with this idea or this visualization of it. So you have a chessboard and then of the pieces you have, you equally distribute it across the board. So a perfect, so you can imagine uh, the white, uh, whatever race it is, uh, so two different races. So a perfectly integrated utopia. Okay. But now let's say you, okay, so now the rule is uh, just based on comfort zone. La. I won't say, won't say any racial thing or anything, just comfort zone. People rather be, not be outnumbered, if that makes sense. Yes. They like to form clans. Yeah. So if, yeah, if, if they find more than two thirds of their neighbors is of another color, then they'll be more than, more, more unhappy la, than they just want to move. Yeah. Yeah. Look at any point now, Uh, you see, let's say the white dot, then you see around it, there is four white dots and four black dots. Perfectly equal. Oh, yeah. Any point. You look at a black dot, any point is four white dots, any point is four black mm-hmm. dots. Perfectly equal. But once you remove 20 pieces and then add five at random, uh, you will start to see that, uh, and so let's say you implement remove five, add five at random. Then you see where they move. You will see that the final position will be a segregated position because now, even though it's removed randomly, there'll be uh, some people with, who are in a comfort zone, some people are not, then they'll move. And people will move to their preferred place. And so the reason why people, the poor areas and the rich areas stay the same is because at large, these people cluster together and they stay together. And that's the equilibrium. You can't shift them out of this position because no matter now, let's say in this new equilibrium, this new final segregated position, you remove an add again, you remove five add five again, they will just create a new uh segregated zone. But tendency is in the same area because that's where everyone is. Wait, so this like uh, this chess board metaphor, is it a direct representation of people? Yes, okay, yes, okay. Yeah. that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was then oh, confused yeah. about why why are these pieces moving? <laughs> I was like, okay. 
Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. They are okay, okay. Are. I thought it was quite interesting because okay, so this thing is quite similar to under the link to a video. It's actually something quite math related. I'll just play the video now, But uh, basically, the title of this video is called "Math Has a Fatal Flaw" and it's by Veritasium. There is a hole at the bottom of math, a hole that means we will never know everything with certainty. There will always be true statements that are impossible to prove. That is life. Specifically, this is the game of life created in 1970 by mathematician John Conway. Sadly, he passed away in 2020 from COVID-19. Conway's game of life is played on an infinite grid of square cells, each of which is either live or dead. And there are only two rules. One, any dead cell with exactly three neighbors comes to life. And two, any living cell with less than two or more than three neighbors dies. Once you've set up the initial arrangement of cells, the two rules are applied to create the next generation, and then the one after that, and the one after that, and so on. It's totally automatic. Conway called it a zero-player game. But even though the rules are simple, the game itself can generate a wide variety of behavior. Some patterns are stable, once they arise they never change. Others oscillate back and forth in a loop. A few can travel across the grid forever, like this glider here. Many patterns just fizzle out. But a few keep growing forever. They keep generating new cells. Now you would think that given the simple rules of the game, you could just look at any pattern and determine what will happen to it. Will it eventually reach a steady state? Or will it keep growing without limit? But it turns out, this question is impossible to answer. The ultimate fate of a pattern in Conway's game of life is undecidable, meaning there is no possible algorithm that is guaranteed to answer the question in a finite amount of time. You could always just try running the pattern and see what happens. I mean, the rules of the game are a kind of algorithm after all. But that's not guaranteed to give you an answer either, because even if you run it for a million generations, you won't be able to say whether it'll last forever or just two million generations, or a billion, or a Googleplex. Is there something special about the game of life that makes it undecidable? Nope. There are actually a huge number of systems that are undecidable, like Wang tiles, quantum physics, airline ticketing systems, and even Magic the Gathering. Okay, so that's that for the video. Uh, now back to the podcast. Actually, one more insight that I got from the remaining few chapters is that, okay, so we see that rationally this from this Thomas uh, Schelling's chessboard is that the areas of the geograph geographically, the areas of uh, rich and poor don't change, right? So that's why if you see it as a race thing, so tendency is the 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 races not really upgrade like geographically, mm. uh. But one of the key problems is that even within one of the key problems that they identify is that black people have this phenomenon called acting white. <laughs> okay. So within the so this is not racism. Uh, from different races la. it's more of within the own race so I'm pretty sure you see in some movies where like if the black guy is just like oh I'm going to study very well I'm going to work hard but then other black guys are just like oh why are you trying to be a nerd that kind right. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. so that phenomenon of having this pressure of uh, not being cool because you are studying is different for different 
different for white people because in white people studying hard isn't an escape but uh, for black people they see it as an escape it's like you're not a brother already you're not a it's similar to how I, I this hit me quite hard uh, because it's similar to the energy where it's like you tell your boss I want to learn machine learning as a doctor to your boss as a as a doctor manager he's just like why is my doctor trying to learn mm. machine learning are you trying to escape yeah, yeah. so it's similar to this group uh, I mean the, 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 the group of black people wherever, is, wherever country it is lah is that they will feel like there's sort of a break in the in the loyalty. Oh yeah, that's true. That's quite yeah. interesting. People are trying to es- yeah, quite trying to escape. And it's very different between sex sexism and racism because uh how do I how, very 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 clear cut is that the world is split into okay, vaguely la, I'll say vaguely into two is uh male and female, right? But male and female cuts across all different races. If if you are black, then statistically uh, I think you have a higher probability that you will be born into a poor family. But that doesn't mean for women you are you are you aren't grown in a, a statistically less educated background or less less opportunity yeah so when I mean he's just comparing la, between the difficulties that women face and difficulties that black people face mm. yeah, I know some people might compare that but actually it's quite different because for example for women you won't have any maybe last time la, but I don't really know how he phrased it la, but, but yeah it's actually that's it it's different la. yeah it's different <laughs> yeah, it's different. but I'm a huge sucker for like all these so-called arbitrary starting points and then that spurring on to many reinforcing loops a lot of things in life are uh, they happen because of very arbitrary starting points. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. yeah so yeah. for example, points, uh, like your the neighborhood that you grew up in, it makes a difference in like the people you network and the kind of ideals and culture that you're exposed to. Then like in school, like the people you are grouped with will also influence your study habits, that kind of stuff. So like um like these things do not like determine like how you turn out, but it they they serve as very powerful nudges into like who you eventually turn out to be. So like it reinforces your point again about how like yeah, the, the poor areas remain poor and then the rich areas remain rich, that kind of thing. It's like self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing loops. One one of the things that I really took away from or the image I took away from this is I think in the the movement last time, uh those those big figureheads for the, the Black Lives Matters but in the past, like those what is Malcolm not not Malcolm X. The kind of who la, Martin Luther and his uh other those key figures. I think when they mentioned this racism within the race, acting white phenomenon, la, I think a few of them cried. I think it was wrote somewhere in the book. Then I was like, damn shit. <laughs> when your figure hit Christ, like, Yeah, damn. shit's going down. Shit's going down. Then one more insight was quite interesting is that you would think that this only happens within those uh black communities, right? Like physically those black communities or black areas, right? But surprisingly, it also happens if let's say those uh very educated, very smart uh black people go into like for them like Harvard that kind yeah. of thing. So you would think that they'll be safe there, right? But actually, or there'll be a, a encouraging loop, right? But a lot of those studies also find that they are they still feel very isolated, or they are actually still very isolated even even, even within those contexts. Hmm. Yeah. As in like so it's in like, the elite like places. Or? I don't know how's or what what how he puts it, but that's the statement. Yeah. Whether is it he does say that if you compare both tendency is that when you go into a, like uni university the people will be more encouraging of you la, of those black people to study I mean naturally but even still they are still segregated they, are, they still feel segregated or like are segregated mm, yeah I can see that happening la. it's just a sad reality yeah. oh wait another random point somewhere along the chapter 6 I can't remember but essentially his point is that so even while areas of rich and poor don't change a country uh, you moving areas doesn't really make a big difference in terms of your output or your productivity or anything. So it shows that your neighborhood makes a big difference to your health happiness, but it will not drag down your test scores, lead you into crime or prevent you from finding a job. 
Yeah. So a lot, a lot of people like to sort of upgrade in life by moving into a better... I mean, even within Singapore, you want to move towards the city, right? You know I think? Because you are imagining there's a better life for you. But it doesn't... It, it doesn't create a better life right? just create to make you feel more happy because you think you have a better life mm. and you're healthy because you maybe can sleep more and yeah of, I guess but I think yeah. this this statement is yeah. a bit it's like kind of a no shit moment it's like mm. obviously when you move into like let's say the city uh, because you think that you're living a better life then like your outlook in life becomes better then this becomes positive nudges into the other aspects of your life also okay I think this yeah. like he, was, he was giving the counter example I mean he's giving a conclusion from a counter example so I think many people were similar. I think he brought up from the point of the why people still stay in New York, right? Why don't they just move to the Rhode Island? So, so the rationale is that it doesn't make a difference. It won't drag down your test scores, even though it takes you longer to travel to New York. If you go into like the Bronx, Brooklyn, higher crime, because it's just a history of these poor areas, doesn't mean that it will lead you into crime. Lead you into crime means lead you into doing crime or prevent you from finding a job. Because, okay, so sometimes, I mean, impressions like if people can see where you stay then they'll know like in general that kind of thing but it doesn't it doesn't affect hmm. yeah but the insight here is that for example for pay you will not see a re- reduction in your pay but you will see a reduction in your increase in rate of pay because you are no longer in the innovation hub and you're not like increasing yourself at that at the rate where everyone is then your value sort of slows down oh, okay hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah I guess, okay, if I talk about one last chapter, chapter 8, I think the main question that I got of it was, or he's asking is that, why is the needs of the few always met in terms of the action you see as opposed to the needs of the many? Abuse of power like in politics, basically, right? And the and you can think of it from one rational point of view is that, so so he, he just gave one example of Al Gore and Bush. I think Bush won, but then he won by very like 500 people. So out of 3 million, 300 million, 500 people is not a lot. So, but his statement still is that your vote doesn't doesn't matter, even if you because America you don't have to vote. Yeah. So some people felt very guilty that they didn't vote. Like they wanted push, they wanted alcohol to win anyways. Yeah. But they just didn't vote. Yeah, because they're lazy. But his point is that it doesn't matter whether you you vote or didn't vote because some math thing like it just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But either way, in any unextreme cases in politics in Singapore, so your one vote doesn't really matter. Because uh, even though Singapore is much more like 5-6 million, your one vote is one out of 5, five or 6 million. Yeah. yeah. And because of this, not just your vote, you can think of why for anything. If I take, for example, Singa- uh, for example America, 300 million, right? Take 10 cents for everyone, I have 30 million. So if, if you see that 10 cents taken you from, from, from you, like, you won't really give a shit. La. You won't yeah. really care, right? It's just 10 cents. But then to that person, it's 30 million. It's a lot of money. I don't need to worry. That's what this guy is trying to argue is that a lot of times, politicians, they don't outrightly take 10 cents from you. They hide it in different policies that they have. Yeah. Then they just aggregates. Yeah, but, then like, yeah, just aggregates. La. But you as a you as a citizen, even if you knew, which you probably won't, it won't matter to you because it's just 10 cents. Yeah. And so that's why change is very difficult in terms of the size. And a lot of times, the ideal world is where the needs of the many will outweigh the needs of the few. La. But individual rational behavior doesn't necessarily lead to the, this social rational outcome. Because individually, as a voter, you don't care you don't care about these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, if I, if I re- rephrase this example, more of allocating, not just stealing, la, not politicians want to allocate money to where. So now, let's say the government takes 10 cents of your pocket money to put into, I don't know, SpaceX or like NASA. But it might not be in the public interest to do that. But just US government want to do it. Mm. Yeah, but the voters won't vote because it doesn't matter to them. So the voters are being rationally ignorant. It won't change much of my my salary if I lost 10 10 cents. Yeah, correct. Yeah, but socially, it's not a rational outcome. Mm. Nice. Okay, yeah, that's all I have to share for this book. Actually, I want to share something yeah. kind of related. Yeah. So like we're talking about a lot about rationality and how humans are not super rational all the time, even though we can expect them to be. Um so like 
what do we do with this knowledge that a lot of humans act like irrationally? So in this book I read, it's called uh, Nudge. Yeah, it's some... Yeah, so they propose this kind of methodology. They call it libertarian paternalism. What they mean by this is that they they want to retain the freedom of choice, but at the same time, they want to influence it so that they pick the correct ones. So like, for example, um, setting defaults is a very, very powerful uh, method of nudging people into making the choice because people face a lot of inertia to change their choices, like, basically. So like, let's say if the government endorses a default option, a lot of people will be like, oh, this option is great. I don't need to change this anymore. The government must have thought this true. But more often than not, like these things are just choices and it's not much of a difference between each other. Yeah, so like this is just one example of like nudges. This kind of methodology of like libertarian paternalism, like I wouldn't say like capitalizes on, but like it just makes use of the fact that a lot of humans think we are affected like very by very odd things and we think very biased manners. Yeah, we think in a biased manner. Mm. Because biases are optimized. Uh, biases are easier to... Yeah, basically it uses our biases. Yeah. Uh, okay. but, but for good yeah. reason. For good reason as in, you mean when they... Okay, I, when, you, when you were saying, I was more thinking like they were sort of hide some ugly policy then you just write, oh, have you read any agreed the statement? Then you just like, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, you can take it in that way lah, but I think the way this book was trying to frame it is like, how you can nudge people to choose the correct options that you want. Yeah, it depends on your motives, lah, basically. So it can be okay. made use of in a good or bad manner. Yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting. It's quite cool. Lah. So like maybe like in healthcare or something, if you want to make people choose this particular option that makes sense for them, you can make like some other choices more like yeah, just set it as the default lah, or something and make it harder for you to unsubscribe to it. Then more often than not, people will stick to it. Yeah, but by by it being by it being the default, then it's like yeah, people have too little energy to go and change it. Like wow. people respond to incentives, law. Whenever I think about all these social engineering, I'm just very scared. Of everything. Yeah, it's quite scary, honestly. It's like, yeah, it's quite scary. Because like, okay, it's like whenever you think about bias and everything, right? It's like, oh shit, we always think like, uh, since we know that we are affected by all these biases, we should be able to think better, right? But no, that's like the mother of all biases is like we have the bias blind spot. So like we don't even know that we are affected, right? <laughs> even though we can acknowledge oh, yeah, it. Yeah. So that's the. That's scary part. Yeah. I guess I've, I sort of came across this idea of nudge in that let's say you want to lose weight, right? Or let's say you want to eat healthier. You just don't buy the unhealthy things at house because then you don't even have the option to yeah. use it. Something like that. Something mm. like that, right? But that's not nudge. That's like nudge to not do it. There's <laughs> not, yeah, it's not entirely a nudge. La. Yeah, it's not entirely a nudge. La. But it's just, you don't have an option. Mm. Do you have anything else you learned this week? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I want to link it back to our previous podcast. Remember we said about how when doctors think more and deliberate over their cases more, it might become more inaccurate. Oh, I, yes. I still haven't gotten a full understanding about it, but I think it could be because when people, when doctors deliberate, it makes sense in a, like why it's inaccurate, it makes sense because in a group context. So if they are deliberating as a group together, then I can see why the diagnosis they make is more inaccurate because group settings amplify a lot of biases. So like, Let's say you have a first doctor in a group and he speaks up first. A lot of people will actually like um kind of reinforce the initial opinion and it's harder for them to put a controversial, contradictory opinion. Yeah. So just by that basis, you can really see like why like opinions can be very skewed to one side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I okay, I, I have no opinion on the <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of the Joseph schooling this this debate about his uh everything. Yeah, I want are you aware of it? Okay, so okay, I'm not fully aware of everything as well, but I'll just see what I just say or observe so my understanding of it is just because he didn't do necessarily very well in, in Olympics I'm not sure how well he, how 
uh, not so well he did, but I just know that he didn't do very well. La. Then uh, there's one guy, I think he was in charge of his, uh, I think he was some swim, swim, swimming president last time. Then basically he sort of went out to uh, sort of debate. So the reason why Joseph Schooling is able to defer NS or either the two, two years of NS or the whole NS cycle is that because he's swimming in Olympics. La. And so this guy who I sort of quote unquote known him or follow him kind of argue like publicly like hey, uh, how can we incentivize him not going to NS because he's still done very badly. So I think in I don't have any opinions but I think I can say for a fact that for, for observation at least that many people's opinions have just stayed for that first guy saying yes, that yeah. I think that oh why are you, dis- why are you discrediting Joseph Schooling's uh, ability to play? But then if you look at a similar case where there's one guy called Ben, I think some Singaporean that went to Fulham, right? Yep. His name is Ben, right? Ben, yeah. yeah, then they're like, oh, Singapore football cannot play, that kind of thing. And why do they defer his NS? And I was like, wait, <laughs> this is probably a case of what you just said, like the nudge. Mm. It's just the first few key people mentioning their opinions and then just... It yeah, just it just blows up. up. Social, social engineering is crazy. Yeah, it's really quite scary. Eh? Oh yeah, another unrelated thing. But like, so it's some people like went to experiment on this uh, first first speaker kind of thing in a social media context. So like, let's say you got your TikTok like comments, right? Um, These people, yeah. they artificially liked a few comments first, okay? And then they, yeah. after a while, like when the, the TikTok like goes through like the media rounds, they found out that these comments with the artificially increased likes, right? They actually got like the tons of, the most number of likes lah, in that whole comment section. So like having the first like and like the first say or something is actually very important. <laughs> Well, actually, just, I'm just contemplating about how every aspect of life completely un- <laughs> unrelated point or so. But I thought it was quite interesting. So I'll just saw some video on this uh this lady was explaining how why Netflix is so good at its algorithm. Uh, oh I know. Because they break they have a algorithm to so-called destroy itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was yeah. Also. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, basically it's so interesting. So I don't know how that works though. Because any of my code, you break part of it, it just it just won't work. <laughs> yeah, it just I don't understand. I don't understand. Works, but that's quite amazing. Uh. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. You break yourself down to sort of know your weaknesses. Yep, okay. Thanks, thanks for your sharing. <laughs> okay, thanks. Ha 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 ha